Hey, Fiends. I'm Isabel. And I'm Andrew. And this is Parafiend. Parafiend. All right. Well, we're back for another Tuesday episode. Yeah, and this one's going to be a two-parter. It is going to be a two-parter. This Tuesday is going to be all me, and then next Tuesday is going to be all you. Yeah, I'm really excited about it, too. Also, real quick, though, before we jump into today's stuff, I'm just going to say I'm highly ashamed of myself. Why are you ashamed of yourself? Because I didn't get called out for it, oh. but I'm calling myself out for this. Yep, we talked about this. Yeah, so on last Tuesday's episode on the um, torture and execution methods, half of the episode I was correct whenever I said that the victims were hanged, and then for some reason I started saying they were hung, which yeah. is not correct. I have no idea why I did that. And like I said, nobody called me out on it, but I heard it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm going to call myself out on that because I don't even know. Yeah. Like to be hanged by the neck till dead is hang, hanged. Yeah. But if uh, you were hanging something on the wall, it would be hung. Right. So, so, oh yeah, you didn't catch it while I was saying it. And I didn't catch it as I was saying it. I don't know what went wrong, but something went wrong. No, it's just one of those English language things where it it's an easy slip up. I mean, hung is the right use of the word in a different sense, but... Yeah. So anyways, I just wanted to put that out there and now I feel better. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, also, another little bit of, um, I guess, news is, you know, we've been putting out episodes every Tuesday and every Thursday and we're going to make a little change. Mm-hmm. Just a little shift in the uh, release dates. Yeah. So we're still going to release uh, Tuesdays, but instead of Thursdays, we're going to move them to Friday. And I think the the reason why we're choosing to do that is because Tuesday and Thursday are just so close to each other. Mm-hmm. And it just, I feel like there's too much of a gap between Thursday and Tuesday So you're getting two episodes like real close to each other and then just a really long break in between, you know, like over the weekend and stuff. Yep. Just trying to spread it out. So you got more time in between. So it's less waiting on one side, but a little bit more wait between Tuesday, Friday. I think it'll be better. Yeah, it'll be good. Oh, and by the way, happy post Thanksgiving, happy post Cyber Monday and everybody who got in on the deals. So hopefully you guys found some stuff that, uh, Set you up right for the Christmas season. Yeah, hopefully you had fun with Black Friday, which is a holiday I refuse to shop on. Oh, yeah, we don't play the Black Friday game. Well, I mean, if it's online, sure, but not like in stores. Mm -mm. I used to play that game, not anymore. You know, I'm really actually uh, annoyed with the fact that they started doing Black Friday on like Thanksgiving Day at like 6 p.m. Yeah. They'll start opening stores. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of a shit show. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It kind of ruins the holiday because, you know, you're. It's supposed to be about family and spending time together, being thankful for what you have. Yeah, and I fully believe that stores should be set up, shut down on that day so that people that work in them mm-hmm. can be at home with yeah. their families. I mean, I appreciate the sacrifice that people working at like Walmart or you know grocery stores or something like that or a hospital Mm -hmm. yeah I mean anybody that has to work on that day kudos to you seriously yeah kudos for those who are working when they have to but I feel like retail and just trying to dish out some t-shirts or you know whatever toys for that season it's like 
Come yeah, on, just, man. Just keep the stores shut down. Yeah. yeah. It can wait. That's what I think, too. All right. Well, are you ready to jump into today's topic? I am. So for this two-parter, we are going to be covering Waverly Hills. Oh, man. It is a freaky place. Normally, I'd ask you if you're familiar with it, but since it's a two-parter and you're covering the other half, obviously you are. Yeah, and I'm I'm assuming that most listeners are going to know this place, even if you don't live in the States. Mm-hmm. I mean, this place is world-renowned. Like, it is very famous. Um, but, you know, considering that you're going to be doing the first part of Waverly, like, when it was open as a facility and, like, its history, if you don't know Waverly, you're about to. Yeah, this is a great place to start with it. Yeah. I mean, even if you don't know the name Waverly, you probably know the uh, surrounding stories and the background to it. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, with that, I'm just going to dive right in. Go for it. All right. So it's hard to talk about Waverly Hills without talking about the disease that landed people there in the first place and the reason it was even you know put together. Right. So we're going to take a look at tuberculosis, a.k.a. the White Death, the White Plague, or the Consumption. The Consumption is probably my favorite nickname for it, but I think that's due to my affinity for old Western things. Mine is the White Death, just because it makes you cringe a little bit. And Mm -hmm. and with the disease, it's so hardcore that the White Death just really kind of brings it full circle. And I think it's also playing off on... uh, the Black Death, the Black Plague, mm-hmm. you know, because those were already in people's minds as like a horrific, you know, disease. Yeah, because like in retrospect, like it it wasn't that long ago that the no. plague was running rampant. Mm-hmm. So though the disease known as tuberculosis was coined by Johann Schonelin or Schonlin in 1834, it's possible it has actually been around for more than 3 million years. Which is insane. Mm-hmm. That is a long time ago. Yep. So for uh, brevity, I'm going to be referring it to tuberculosis as TB through a lot of this. Okay. So TB can be traced back 9,000 years ago to a city called Atlet Yam uh, off the coast of Israel. But this city currently and will forevermore reside beneath the Mediterranean Sea. Nice. A mother and her children were found buried together by archaeologists. Both mother and child had succumbed to tuberculosis. Looking back at writings, the earliest mentions of TB can be traced back to 3,300 years ago in India and 2,300 years ago in China. That sounds a lot like Atlantis. Yeah, I mean, maybe. It's a city under the water. I know. I I was just thinking about it because, you know, it, there's been several cities that have been, you know, plunged underneath the waves. True. And so every time I hear about one... I just think they're kind of cool because a lot of them you can still go and take like uh, glass bottom boat tours. Mm-hmm. And I've always wanted to do that. So or I even, wonder if this place is like that. Even do like a scuba dive? Yeah. That would be cool. It would be. Well, back in ancient Greece, TB was called Phthisis. In ancient Rome, it was called Tabes. And in ancient Hebrew, it was called Shechafeth. So tying it back to the Israel there. Uh, during the Middle Ages, TB was called Scofula, if it was noted in the neck and lymph nodes, and it was thought to be something completely different than TB of the lungs. So TB didn't get its more well-known name as the White Plague until the 1700s, when people began to notice how pale it made its victim. The 1800s brought on its other well-known name of consumption, due to how much weight people would lose with the illness. Now curiously, TB has also been called Captain of All These Men of Death. 
Personally, I think that's a little too long of a nickname. It is, but it's a weird one. It is a weird one. It is. I wonder where that came from. Yeah. Truly. That's a weird one. uh, I don't know. For sure. I mean, maybe we'll look into the origins later. Yeah, maybe. TB caused about 25% of all deaths in Europe between the 1600s and 1800s. That's a lot. Yeah. Making its way over to America, the numbers were about the same. So like a quarter of all deaths. It became the leading cause of death in the States. And by the dawn of the 19th century, it was said that one out of seven people died by, from tuberculosis that ever lived on the planet. That is so many people. Yeah. Seriously, that's, a lot. That's hard to imagine, right? It really is. So back in those times, we really didn't comprehend that something so small as a germ could wreak so much havoc. I mean, we really hadn't even discovered that germs were, you know, a thing. But because of this, doctors and others were grasping at straws trying to figure out what TB was. Right. So they began to believe that it was hereditary. Like you would pass it down from, you know, your genealogy. It, it makes sense, though. I mean, they're just trying to figure out what it is. And it would make sense being like, oh, well, maybe people are like born with it. Yeah. I mean, if you don't know what germs are, you're taking every stab in the dark that you can. Correct. In New England, during the early 1800s, it was a time when they were freaking out over vampires. So when tuberculosis came barreling through their towns, it was thought that the first family member to pass from TB would come back as a vampire to spread the disease to everyone else. Oh my gosh. There was only one remedy in their minds, dig up the loved ones and perform some good old rituals. Some even include burning of the internal organs. Oh man, it is so interesting to me to look back and see what people used to panic over Mm -hmm. like the witch panic and vampire panic oh yeah and like the things that they would do to try to stop them from like taking over right well on march 24th 1882 robert cook discovered the tb bacteria called mysobacterium tuberculosis before presenting it to the world in a presentation he named the etiology de tuberculose at the Berlin Physiological Society Conference. This presentation landed him the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology in 1905. Well-deserved. Yeah, rightly earned. And I think that as his discovery proved to the world that TB was in fact an infectious disease rather than hereditary or vampires. Right, which, I mean, good on him. Yeah. I give so much kudos to like the the old scientists and everything that, you know, made discoveries that cured a lot of people. Yeah, groundbreaking medicine mm-hmm. and, you know, discovery about just science and how the world is at large. Yeah. It's crazy. So let's look back at some of the treatments they used for TB. Okay. Now, back in the Middle Ages, when they called TB scofula, the treatment was the royal touch. Essentially, people with the disease would go to their sovereign and line up for their touch. They thought that by having their kings and queens touching them, they would be cured. I mean, that that one's crazy to me because how many times did that not work, but people still believed it, you know? I know. And I mean, as much as I I never want to call anybody dumb, that's dumb. (laughs) Yeah. It's superstition and weird beliefs to the max. Yeah. Like this human can touch me and just make me okay. Yeah, like even the idea that the hierarchy of leadership there had been chosen by God or put in place by otherworldly power. Mm -hmm. 
the fact that they would just like touch you on the forehead and then you're all better. I mean, I guess I can understand it because generally the the church would be the ones to be like, oh, they were chosen by God. Right. And, you know, God wants them with the, you know, the crown on their head. So Mm -hmm. I guess I can kind of understand why these people would think that the king could cure something or the queen could cure something because they think that they were put in their place by God. Yeah. But I'm sorry. It's dumb. Yeah. I mean, like I said, the amount of times it would have to not work. And then people are like, no, this is still the way. Oh, it's crazy. Well, by the 1800s, they'd figured out that a king's touch wouldn't work. So they moved on to cod liver oil, inhaling hemlock or turpentine, and vinegar massages. Vinegar massages. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, they realized that there was something suspicious going on with patients' lungs. So the go-to treatment was a well-balanced and nutritious diet, lots of rest, and warmth. Okay. Now, this is the biggest reason for TB being so popular amongst Wild West narratives, I think. The good doctor on the East Coast would prescribe warm, dry air, so folks with family members who were afflicted would pack up and head to the Southwest where it was dry and warm. Sure. Eventually, people began to believe that fresh air was the number one thing to help those with TB heal. And though we weren't there medically with germs and TB, they were beginning to take some steps for prevention of spreading the disease. That's why a lot of windows and open air were very popular. Right. So with the knowledge now that TB was contagious rather than hereditary, they began to side-eye anyone with a cough. I mean, TB was seen as a massive threat, and for good reason. Everyone around them was dying from it. Does that uh, remind you of any current events? Oh, yeah, COVID. Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense. And I mean, you you would like to believe that with the advance of medicine that we wouldn't shun people like that anymore. But COVID really proved at least me wrong on that. Yeah. I mean, when it was at its height, anyone coughed or sneezed or just looked like they were feeling a little unwell, people were like, get away from me. Which I can, I understand that because nobody wants to catch something, you know, especially with a disease that could potentially kill you. Right. But it's And one so very contagious. It just also sucks to think about the the fact that these are people Mm -hmm. and you- They're like, it's like if you had gotten a disease, do you want people to shun you for that? Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy how we treat each other. It's pretty rough sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a need to have something aside from regular cloth handkerchiefs. So Kleenex was the perfect solution, which is smart. Yeah, for sure. And I didn't know until recently that Kleenex was, uh, or, you know, disposable tissue was that old. Apparently, spitting in the streets was also a really big problem back then. Gross. So, women's hemlines were raised so their skirts weren't dragging on the ground bringing disease home. That's really smart, actually. I mean, if you've got a dress that's dragging on the ground, one, I mean, that kind of sucks already because now you got dirty clothes. Mm -hmm. But then also dragging in bacteria and lifting it up so it's not an issue, that's pretty intelligent. That's very smart, yeah. So men also began to shave off their facial hair because they thought they could potentially be carrying TB in their beards. There's even a pamphlet created and handed out that said, shave your whiskers. You do not want to kiss your baby or wife with a beard. That's kind of funny. It is, right? I mean, it like I understand they're trying to, you know, make sure that TB is not being spread in any way that they can. And it's smart. They're getting the word out. But that's a really funny saying. Yeah, right. I mean, you would think that just covering your face, covering your beard in public 
I guess kind of like the way we're doing with masks would wash help. Wash it. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing. Wash it. <laughs> like, that's my biggest thing is like, I can understand, you know, they're worried if other people are coughing in it and then you're coming home and immediately infecting other people. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I mean, most people didn't shave their beards whenever COVID hit. But I mean, we're also talking about the late 1800s too. So. Right. So like running water and, you know, access to sanitizers was not as prevalent. Right. So it's pretty obvious that people were scared of TB and they were going to be you know, using some pretty drastic measures to avoid it. People would legit be shunned from entering town if they had even a small cough. And it was reported that people would try to kick others out of their own towns. God. So imagine you're living wherever you do. You get a cold or just allergies. Someone hears you cough and then you're shunned. Kick the fuck out of your own home, your own city, and then they just shuffle you off. People began to set up tent cities and move people with TB or suspected TB into them. The sheriff would go around, force you from your own house, and take you to these tent cities. That's that's incredible. I mean, if you look back once again to COVID, could you imagine if we were still doing something like that? Yeah. You got COVID and they just kicked your ass out of your own home mm-hmm. and threw you in a tent? Right. That that's would, awful. Yeah, that would suck. But it also, I feel like it kind of stems from like the plague. Mm-hmm. They're looking more towards that, you know? Yeah. So, and, you know, we're a little bit more advanced, you know, in medicine and in sanitary kind of rituals and stuff. So, I, you know, obviously, I don't think that this would really be a thing mm-hmm. on the tent cities, but it's just insane to think about. Yeah, I think there was a lot of fear that people were going to get put into like FEMA camps and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, once they contracted covid at same way like people once they contracted tb get shuffled off into a camp until they can be determined well enough to re-enter society i mean in a way it's smart you know trying to kind of contain the disease somewhere yeah but it also is just really shitty it's a really shitty thing to do to people yeah since these people in tent cities were really sick they couldn't work and when you don't work you don't make money so these people were starving god they couldn't afford to buy anything Some citizens began charities that would, you know, go out to tent cities and feed people. Good on them. Right. Good on them. Well, it was finally noted that something needed to be done. They couldn't keep people in tents. They needed to build something so these people could be housed. Something like a hospital, but not just a hospital. These people needed, you know, their last home, essentially. Right. Because TB was a killer. And in all, TB took around 2 billion lives in total, making it the perfect reason to be named the plague of all plagues. That's just so many people. I know I've said it before, but I mean, can you literally think 2 billion people? Yeah. That is so many. Mm Mm-hmm. Man. Well, now we enter sanatoriums. These were places that could provide not only treatment, but a safer place to live away from other people, healthy people, reducing the chance of continuing the spread of TB. So before we get to Waverly, we're going to talk a little bit about a sanatorium real quick. Something that I find, you know, pretty fascinating. Well, it wasn't exactly a sanatorium as they weren't a thing yet, but more of a treatment center that was kind of a snake oil situation. Okay. So there's a national park in central Kentucky called Mammoth Cave National Park. It houses one of the world's longest known cave systems. So in 1839, Dr. John Krogan of Louisville, Kentucky purchased the Mammoth Cave property for $10,000 to open a facility that would treat those with TB. This was really important to him considering he himself was suffering from the illness. It was reported that miners and visitors would feel strangely well after spending some time in the cave. A reverend by the name of Horace Carter Hovey wrote, 
the air is slightly exhilarating and sustains one in a ramble of five or ten hours, so that at the end of it, he is hardly sensible of fatigue. Okay. After doing a bit of research in the cave, Dr. Krogan observed that timber and animals did not decay inside of it. He then began to concoct the idea that the environment within the cave would be restorative and therapeutic for TB patients. He then established an experimental treatment facility inside the cave. More grasping at straws. I mean, searching for whatever you can. Yeah. Over time, it was noted this experiment in the cave did not work. Patients were still dying rather than being cured. So the facility was shut down and Dr. Krogan died from TB in 1849. I mean, it's really sad that he died. And I know that he was probably just looking for anything he could grasping at straws, especially, you know, considering he was dying from TB himself. I think it's just really hard to sit back and watch all of these things that they they grasp at to try to cure people and they just don't work, yeah. especially with how many snake oil salesmen there were back in the day. Yeah, and I think across the board, the snake oil salesman people are real shitbags. Oh, yeah. But Dr. Krogan seemed like he was legitimately trying to find a viable solution for this disease. And in a time when no cure really existed, he was doing whatever he could. In, in the search of trying to progress medicine and, you know, science in general, you know, you have to look at every angle. And I'm sure yeah. that this was just another angle. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I can't help but like think of like mineral springs, you know, trying to yeah. cure cancer patients. When you know that that was, that was more of a money grab. And mm-hmm. in my opinion, that's what it was. And so, you know, I'm not trying to compare the two because I think this dude really was just trying to find a cure, you right. know, anything that he could. Uh, but gosh, it's just hard to hear. Yeah. The first real sanatorium to arise in the United States opened in 1875 in Asheville, North Carolina. Real close to us. Mm-hmm. It was opened by a man named Joseph Gleitzman. The second one was built in 1884 by Dr. Edward Livingston Trudeau in Saranac, New York. Now, Dr. Trudeau unfortunately had TB and did not survive, but he managed to open the first laboratory in the U.S. for the research of TB in 1894 before his death. Nice. Dr. Trudeau was the first person to introduce the concept of open-aired cottages, and a lot of subsequent sanatoriums copied this design. In Louisville, Kentucky, a man by the name of Major Thomas H. Hayes bought a ton of land that he wanted to put a family home on. Hayes put up a schoolhouse on the land for his daughters to attend because the nearest school was too far away. So the one-room schoolhouse was built, and a woman named Lizzie Lee Harris was hired as the children's teacher. It was Lizzie's love for the small school and her fondness for the Waverly novels that prompted the schoolhouse to be named Waverly School. Major Hayes apparently really took a liking to the name, so he ended up naming the entire property Waverly Hills. Yeah, and it makes sense that Waverly was actually on top of a hill, too. Mm-hmm. So, well, I mean, Kentucky's full of hills. Yeah. In the early 1900s, Louisville was huge. It was four times bigger than Houston and Dallas, and one of the biggest cities in the U.S. at the time. But because of its large population, it made TB a huge issue. Yeah, more people, more disease. Mm-hmm. Especially slammed in close to each other. Yeah. So by 1907, Kentucky and Tennessee had the highest rate of TB deaths in the U.S. It was mostly due to the warm weather and large populations. This was also the same year that a tuberculosis dispensary dispensary was opened. Think of it like a doctor's office that would evaluate those with TB and then determine who needed to go to the hospital and who would just go home. 
Unfortunately, as we'll see soon, those determined too advanced were just sent home pretty much just to die. That's sad. Yeah. Citizens began to beg their governing officials to do something, to build a hospital in the area to treat people. The Anti-TB Association in Louisville was formed in 1905 due to the wealthy becoming fed up with their city being so hit so hard with TB. They fought to have a facility built, and so build it they did. Okay. They began looking for a ground, some ground to house this place. They knew it needed to be far from the city, with a ton of land, and somewhere with a lot of open air. Eventually, they found Hayes' Waverly Hills. The government purchased the land from Hayes and kept the Waverly name as it sounded peaceful. In 1908, ground was broken for Waverly. It took two years to build the first Waverly building, which was a two-story wooden administrative building with two connected open-air pavilions on either side. These pavilions could house and treat 40 to 50 patients, 20 male patients on one side, 20 females on the other. On July 26, 1910, Waverly opened its doors to the public. I've seen uh, pictures of this because, you know, doing my own research for my part of the story. Right. And if, if you look at Waverly's pictures now mm-hmm. at the building that it is currently yeah. versus what it was when it first opened, right. vastly different. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Vastly. We'll get into why and, you know, the changes that were made and everything else, but it was... It was very... It was a lot smaller. Oh, yeah. By a lot. Mm-hmm. Its original design and what it ended up being, vastly yeah. different. So originally, the facility called themselves Waverly Hills Hospital, but they realized they needed a name that spotlighted them as a long-term facility center, so they used sanatorium. At the time, Waverly only took on early-stage TB patients, and like with the dispensary, late-stage patients were sent home to die. Obviously, that was horrible. One, of the one these people deserved treatment too, but also, two, sending people home just continued the spread of the illness. Yeah. So it was decided a few years later that something needed to be done. On August 31st, 1912, all TB patients from the city hospital were relocated to temporary quarters and tents located on Waverly Hills, just like the tent city, pending the construction of a new hospital for advanced cases. More fucking tents. Mm-hmm. They had to put them somewhere. The land was there, and they were like, well, set up a tent. Yeah. It's just so, sad to see. Oh, very, very sad. In December of 1921... The new constructed building on the property was opened and could house 40 more patients. So now we're talking about 80 to 90 patients that they can accept in total. Okay. In 1914, they added a children's pavilion with 50 more beds. So that brings the number of beds up to about 130 for the entire facility. The children's pavilion wasn't only for sick children, but also for children of the adult TB patients who could not care for their own children. And not just children that came into the facility with parents, but there were also a lot of women who came in pregnant. So their babies would be immediately sent to the children's ward, which in my mind, pretty horrible idea. Sticking otherwise healthy children in with children who have already, you know, been diagnosed with TB, not great. I absolutely hate that. Yeah. Especially at this point when they know it's not hereditary. Yeah. And they know that it's being spread like, you know, airborne. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're just like, oh, well, you know, fuck it. Just throw them in there. Yeah. I don't. Why? I don't think they understood like the reason for the contagion, but they knew that it was spreading and like to just be like, oh, we'll figure it out. Throw them in there. Not great. Yeah. It's not at all. Can you imagine how many children went in there, got sick and died because they did that? Yeah. It's pretty messed up. So now remember how the original Waverly building was wooden? 
Yes. Well, due to this, the building was constantly needing repairs. It didn't take much to see that they needed a more stable structure, something sturdier. Plus, even with 130 beds, there were so many people with TB that most were just being turned away. There weren't enough beds for everyone who needed one. Now, between the 1920s and 1930s, the United States began to pass laws that required state hospitals to provide beds to people with TB. So, like, if there were 500 TB patients, they had to provide 500 beds. I feel like that was easier said than done, though. Well, yeah, it's real easy to pass a law saying this needs to be ha- needs to happen. This needs to be put into place. But then to make that happen, it, it's a huge muscle movement. Yeah, you can't just magically make 500 beds appear. Yeah, and where are you going to put the beds? Yeah, I mean, you have to build something that's going to house these people, and that takes a while. It takes time and takes resources. Yeah, resources they probably don't have. Yeah, you got to collect those resources, buy materials, put them in the right place. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. People to actually do the job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they once again began construction at Waverly in... March of 1924, they built a steel and concrete building that could house more than 400 people. On October 17, 1926, the main building that we see today on the property was opened. The facility could now take in patients with every condition and every stage of TB. Soon, Waverly became nationally known for its treatment of TB. Because the illness was so contagious, extreme quarantine measures were taken to this facility. I mean like extreme. All patients and staff and the staff's family were required to stay on the property. Wow. Like all the time. They could not leave. This forced them to become their own little town, though, completely self-sufficient. They raised their own animals, grew their own food. They even ran their own post office and had a full mechanic shop, butcher shop, and farmed several hundred-acre farmlands. That's crazy. Yeah, like super self-sufficient. That's, I mean, it's a smart idea, though. Oh, yeah. An impressive feat to pull off. For sure. Well, they weren't done yet. About two years later, two-story brick structure with half-timber work was built next to the main building. It was like the original two-story building that had been built. Now, if you look at the pictures of Waverly now, you'll see the front five-story building. This was built later along with African-American quarters, quarters for interns, nine different residences for the doctors, a generator building, a garage, a workshop, heating station, and water pump station. There was a morgue, an off-site crematorium, and a school for the children, and a laundry. And something I thought was really cool was uh, they had their own radio station. That's really awesome. Yeah. I mean, when you have all this infrastructure, I guess, like, why not throw a radio station in? I mean, yeah, and maybe as a way to try to entertain the patients and, Mm -hmm. like, keep the whole facility, like, up to date on what's going on just at that facility. Yeah, you got to be able to broadcast news to everybody. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, when you have hundreds of acres and people spread across all sorts of buildings, some... I mean, you can't just send out a mass text, so radio station. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Waverly was coined the most advanced TB treatment center in America. And though so many people wanted in, they only took in Louisville residents. But even being so advanced for the time, there still wasn't a cure and most people died. Very few people lived and were able to actually leave Waverly. It truly became their last home. But even with all the new buildings and having 400 beds, they were once again having to turn away patients because they were running out of room. And there was just not enough time to build anything bigger quickly enough. They began to triage patients as they came in, and the ones who were in the last stages of the disease, the ones who were essentially doomed to die, were turned away to home or to another hospital. 
It's like a vicious circle. It is. They didn't, what could they do? I mean, yeah. And it's just so reminiscent of what we just went through with COVID where the Mm -hmm. hospitals were filling up and, you know, they, all the beds were full. So they were having to turn people away. And then people that were coming in with, you know, sicknesses or injuries or whatever that didn't have anything to do with COVID. Yeah. They couldn't take them. Yeah. It's, it's a clusterfuck. It really is. Now, Waverly wasn't the only sanatorium in Louisville. In 1907, Hazelwood Sanatorium was opened. It was a whites-only facility in a 10-bed hospital. In February of 1912, though, a fire destroyed Hazelwood, and a new fireproof building was constructed with three stories and 120 beds that opened April 1st, 1915. Now, it didn't take long for this facility to be overwhelmed just like Waverly. And in 1918, Hazelwood added three open-air cottages and several tents for male patients. Eventually, they were able to add a 70-bed children's ward and a fully functioning x-ray department, light therapy building, and minor surgery wing. In 1943, the facility opened an African-American building and skyrocketed their bed count to 230. So at least there was like another facility nearby, but it just wasn't enough. Back in Waverly, they finally expanded and were able to house 480 patients but they had 75 to 100 patients on a wait list. So, you I mean, you can see how bad it was back then. Now, I didn't do a deep dive um, on the history of Waverly like you did for this part. Right. Um, but I did look into a little bit of background for my episode next week. And one of the things that I did notice is the African-American population just got the short end of the stick whenever it came to beds for mm-hmm. TB, I mean, their treatment for TB, anything. I mean, that that's pretty much a running kind of issue, it yeah. seems like. Yeah. Um, but God, it just made me so angry. Well, I mean, this is post-Civil War. So, you know, emancipation of slavery and slavery was put to an end. But segregation and racism was still really strong. Oh, it was. And I mean, Waverly, their African-American quarter wasn't even in the main building. No. It was a building off to the side, and it was a lot smaller. And when Hazelwood was open, it it wouldn't even take African-Americans. Yeah, they had to wait to build a uh, separate building for them as well. It's pretty messed up. It really is. Could you imagine walking up, being so sick, and just needing help mm-hmm. and they're like no you're the wrong color yeah oh it's just blood boiling yeah there's uh some some dark stains on our country's history yeah for with race. sure for sure well now we're going to look at some of the treatments that were done at waverly as we talked about toward the beginning the treatments prescribed for tb at the time were healthy food open air and at waverly they also included what they considered uh, competent medical supervision well at the time you know mm-hmm. it was competent to them well waverly had these porches that were screened in and they would set patients beds out on the porches to get fresh air and when weather permitted they would take them onto the grounds it got to a point however that they were beginning to leave patients on the porches even in the winter because fresh air was so important they would give them blankets at least so i guess there's that that's crazy A former patient at Waverly described her experience there. She stated she was left on the porch for so long that snow would cover her feet before they'd bring her and the others back in. She was constantly asking her husband husband, to bring her more blankets. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I understand the fresh air was important, but to be left out on the porch for so long that like snow covered you and then like, hey, can I get another blanket? Sorry, we're busy. Bitch, I'm covered in snow. I know. Yeah. 
So the residents of Louisville were actually so scared of Waverly patients being left on the porch that they, because they thought the TB patients were spreading the disease from the porch where it would float on the wind and into the city. Like they were magically blowing TB onto them yeah, from like, like miles away. Yeah. Like it's uh, smog from a factory drifting into the city. I mean, I, I guess I can understand that thought, mm-hmm. but for reals. Yeah. Well, I mean, that Just obviously- like a wave of TB. Yeah. Well, I mean, that obviously wasn't true. The real issue was the disease so rampant in Louisville that there was no way to isolate it. It was just everywhere. Mm-hmm. So as another way to fight off TB, they introduced exposing patients' lungs to UV radiation, which they called heliotherapy or sun treatment. It was essentially just sunbathing, to be honest, but they used artificial lighting when they couldn't use the actual sun. And what's wild about it is that it actually kind of worked because the sun would kill off bacteria. So if you had TB on your skin, it would kill it. It wouldn't cure people, obviously, but it would help to slow down the spread of the disease. The UV radiation would also help the production of vitamin D, which also helps to combat and heal from TB bacteria. Oh, okay. That's smart. It's pretty neat. I mean, they didn't know that at the time. They just thought, hey, the sun gets working. Yeah, it's doing something. (laughs) Yeah. So they had these sunrooms for patients, and there were times when they would take the children onto the fifth floor because that floor was like just the roof and barely dressed so they could get their sun time. So when it was really hot, the patients would go outside and sweat out the bacteria and the sun would kill it. At least that's how they thought it worked at the time. I mean, obviously they weren't sweating out the bacteria, but. There's a really cool picture of uh, children playing on the fifth floor doing sun therapy. Yeah, I think I saw that one. It, it was a pretty neat picture. Yeah, they, they kept them mostly undressed, you know, so the sun would hit as much of their body as possible. They would just, yeah. you know, cover the lower parts of them. Mm-hmm. But it's it's an interesting picture. If, and I'll post it. Yeah. I was going to say look it up, but no, I'll post it. Hell yeah. So surgery was also a big thing for TB patients at Waverly. Okay. Doctors would perform lobectomies, which is where they'd remove one of the lobes within the lungs. And this was done when a problem is found in just a part of the lung. They also performed pneumectomies, which is a surgical removal of the part of the lung or the entire thing. Pharynectomies are also known as pharynic nerve crush were done to cut off nerve supply to one diaphragm. This would paralyze it, allowing it to remain in a relaxed phase. It was to not only diminish respiratory movements, but also decrease volume of the lung. And by doing this, it allowed the disabled lung to heal. Artificial pneumothorax were performed as a way to introduce air into the pleural cavity or, you know, between the coverings of the lung, allowing the diseased area to collapse. And this allowed for recovery of the diseased section. For those who could not undergo the surgery, they were prescribed what's known as postural rest. This is where the patient would lie on their affected side, restricting the excursion of the lung, putting it at partial rest. And the last surgical procedure performed was a thoracoplasty. This was the surgical removal of rib bones from the chest wall. At the time, they were normally removed about seven to eight ribs. And this was done to permanently collapse tuberculosis cavities within the resection of the ribs from the chest wall. There was treatment for patients who had TB infection in both their lungs known as shot bag method. They would take two bags, each containing one pound of shot, and place them on either collarbone of the patient. Each week, they would do this and increase the weight by four to five ounces until they had finally gotten up to five pounds on each side. That's a lot. Yeah. And this would restrict the excursion of the lungs in hopes to teach correct breathing techniques and produce partial rest for the lungs. 
So, I mean, at least they were trying things to help, but it I don't think it worked as effectively as they hoped. Surgery back then was very, very dangerous, mm-hmm. um, especially with their lack of knowledge with um, keeping things clean and sterile yeah. and, and things of that nature. And it, it kind of comes back to you have to do stuff to advance science, right? even if it's not correct. And you unfortunately, you know, lose a patient because of it. Or a lot of patients. Yeah, or a lot of patients. And so it, it's really sad sometimes to look back on history and see that. Mm-hmm. But you also know that if it hadn't have happened, we wouldn't be where we are today. And if we're not doing the things we are today, then we won't advance for the future. So I read one time that some of the greatest medical advancements in history have been made because of war. So because mm-hmm. they had so many people, you know, being wounded and everything else, that that just put so many patients into doctors' care. So they started developing new treatment methods because they had to. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Just kind of crazy. It is. So the patients at the hospital were just normal people like you and me. But after they contracted TB, they weren't looked at like that anymore. They were no longer the boy or girl next door. Now they were seen as a threat and looked down upon by others. Most of the patients at Waverly were younger because, you know, you have to think, younger people are typically more social. And with an airborne disease, it was easily caught up the more social you were. Right. And most of these people didn't survive. They were unfairly robbed of most of their lives. Yeah, especially the children. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That That's probably the worst when you you don't even have the disease. Just your parents catch it and you get thrown into the sanatorium. Yeah. There was a 27-year-old patient at Waverly by the name of Lois Higgs. She went into the facility with pulmonary TB and she was known to be really active and the illness just fucked her up. She slowly wasted away and was unfairly pulled from her kids, husband, and friends. She had everything Waverly could offer, and there were high hopes that she would recover. But unfortunately, on August 18th, 1956, Lois passed. She was 28 at the time of her death. You could see how quickly it took her. You know, less than a year, and she was gone. I know, and 28 is so young. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, you know, 34, and I, I couldn't imagine dying at 28 or even my age or younger than that. It's just, yeah. it's very, it's very eye-opening to read other people's stories. Oh, yeah. And especially with, I think we take for granted how long life expectancy is in the modern era. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's new. Yeah, Newer. You it know, is. To the past 100 years, 150 maybe. Yeah, where people were dying off at, you know, 28 and that was normal. Or, you know, 50, 60 was, you know, pretty old. Now it's like 50, 60, it, you're coming into the second phase of your life almost. Yeah. Well, Lois' story is a popular one, told over and over again, but she was not the only one who suffered this fate. Most of those within Waverly met the same demise, and it's fucking sad. It really is. Though we have treatments for TB now, it's bitter to think of those who didn't have the same opportunities. I think that's what kills me the most, mm-hmm. is, is looking back and knowing you can't do anything. Yeah. That they're just stories now. That feeling goes out to... So many painful tragedies, injustices, and diseases, and everything else. Yeah, it's awful. So at Waverly, it's customary for those who go to visit to know the history of Lois and to bring flowers and place them in the closet of her old room. Not only in memory of her, but for the others who, you know, passed as well. That's a nice, that's a nice thing. Yeah, she's kind of like the mascot for those who have I was going to say taken. spokesperson, but that yeah. wasn't right considering. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, mascot, I guess. Um, 
that kind of doesn't sound right either. But uh, yeah, representative, be, poster yeah, child, something like that. Yeah. But anyways, it's nice that you know people go and pay their respects and leave flowers, and they just remember. You know, Waverly, even though it's seen as like this haunted place, especially whenever we get into my part next week, you see that it it's kind of like, you know, a paranormal attraction. Mm -hmm. But it's nice that people look at this place as a um, like a memorial. Right. As well, because I feel like that's what it really should be. So we'll get into that a little bit later at the end. Okay. So as for Waverly and the rest of the U.S. and honestly, the world in the early 1900s. The race for the cure for TB was on. Scientists in Europe and the U.S. were finally ident- able to identify three drugs, which, when taken together, handed them what they had long sought: a cure. Selman Wackman discovered a compound in 1943 that acted against the tuberculosis bacteria, and this compound was called streptomycin. It was given to the first human patient in November of 1949, and they were overjoyed to find that the patient was completely cured. They did notice, however, that some patients who had received streptomycin would improve before strangely becoming ill once again due to a resistance with the drug. With a bit more research and trials, they were able to develop a few additional anti-tuberculosis drugs that finally became fully effective, making a cure for the deadliest disease in America and probably around the world a reality. Yeah, thank goodness for that. By the 1950s or late 1950s, it was noted that the cure rates were 80 to 90 percent if anti if all anti tuberculosis drugs were taken. It was a damn miracle. Yeah, definitely. But though even to this day, TB is still a problem in you know less developed countries, which is kind of tragic and horrible. It really is. With the cure came less of a need to have sanatoriums, as patients could now be treated at outpatient hospitals. By the mid-1950s, TB had pretty much been eradicated in the States, and by 1961, TB was completely under control, and Waverly closed its doors. For about a year or so after the facility shut down, it sat vacant. But then, in 1962, it was reopened as Woodhaven Medical Services Nursing Home. Not only did it house those with dementia and mobility issues, it also took in those with mental disabilities who had no other place to go. And that led some people to think that Waverly had once been an asylum, but it wasn't. Waverly was never an asylum. Yeah, I think that's a really big misconception. Mm -hmm. But like so many other facilities like Woodhaven at the time, it failed due to being way understaffed with way too many patients. And with it continuing to fail due to being understaffed, it just led to further cuts in staff. It was like a domino effect, a never-ending vicious cycle where... The failures just kept feeding off each other and making it worse. And what's bad is that still happens today. Oh, yeah. There are still overcrowded facilities all over the country, and it literally leads to so many problems. Yeah. I know that people who are in those positions working there, they just try to make the best with what they have. Mm-hmm. But the people who are patients there still suffer. Yeah, they definitely do. Well, with so few people to run Woodhaven, they could never adequately provide long-term care for the residents, and soon conditions got really bad. Rumors of neglect began to swirl around, and the state of Kentucky stepped in and did an investigation. They closed the facility down in 1981 because of numerous violations and confirmations of abuse. Which is awful. Oh, yeah. Awful. Elderly abuse. 
makes me so angry. And abuse of those with, you know, dementia or mental issues. Oh my gosh. It makes me literally like as a nurse Mm -hmm. makes me so angry. Yeah. And I mean, think as everybody has, you know, grandparents or, you know, elderly family members or friends, yeah, friends or Mm -hmm. neighbors that they just care about. Like everyone knows someone who's older. Right. And when you imagine those close to you be in that position, being treated poorly, it's, upsetting. The elderly uh, population is seen as disposable. They really, they really are not by everybody, but that is a very high mentality of some people. And it Mm -hmm. just, it's gross. Yeah. It is disgusting. There's a pretty common trend for that to be thought of in some cultures. Oh, it just makes me so angry. Other cultures, you know, revere their elderly, but that's not everybody. No, not at all. And it's just... Man, just treat old people with the dignity and respect they deserve. Mm -hmm. So after Woodhaven was shut down, the property was then pieced out and purchased by several different developers. To this day, there's still a golf course on the property and a park. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. For the next 20 years, the Waverly building just kind of chilled. Then it's surprisingly stayed intact on its own without anybody taking care of it. Eventually, it was auctioned off and the guy who bought it, named Clifford J. Clifford Todd, decided he wanted to turn it and 40 acres into a minimum security prison. Huh. This did not go over well with the community, though, and there were major protests from people who lived in the area. Eventually, the state of Kentucky told Todd, no, it's not going to happen. Instead of taking a loss, Todd was like, okay, fine, I'll just turn the building into apartments. But that fell through due to lack of funding. I can understand people being a little opposed to Waverly turning into a prison, but I wonder if it was because, you know, they didn't want a prison so close to their home or if because they just didn't want Waverly being turned into a prison. So from the way I read it, they were upset that they were going to be trying to put a prison so close to where they lived. You know, back in the day when Waverly was open, it was very isolated, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there weren't a lot of houses. That was why it was so attractive. I mean, are there a lot of houses around it today? Well, I mean, it's off like a pretty well-trafficked section of like the highway. And okay. it's the highway almost turns into like a residential main street kind of thing. So it, I don't know what it was back in like the late 90s, but it's fair to assume that what it is today is pretty similar to what it was. Okay, so they were going to have a prison ago. pretty close to their house then. Yeah. Okay, I can understand being upset about that. Yep, and the property also is real close to uh, the Jefferson National Forest, I believe. Oh, okay. So, not a great place for a prison when you can escape into, you know, a national forest. Or into somebody's backyard. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Okay. So, old Todd eventually sold it in March of 1996 to another gentleman gentleman named Robert Alberhasky. This dude, he's something else. Hmm, okay. So, old Rob bought the property because he decided that Louisville needed to have a giant Jesus statue. What? And Waverly was the perfect place for it. No, he didn't. He'd apparently had a vision while in Rio de Janeiro, but we can all kind of guess that he pretty much just saw the Christ the Redeemer there and wanted to not only copy it, but outdo it. So Robert decided he would have the world's tallest Jesus statue, along with an art and worship center. He hired local sculptor Ed Hamilton and architect Jasper Ward to build this thing. The entire cost of the statue was to be $4 million. That's a lot of money. And it would stand 150 feet tall and be 150 feet wide. 
And to top it off, it would be situated right on top of Waverly's roof. On top of the roof? Mm-hmm. Robert wanted to turn the rest of the hospital into a chapel, theater, and gift shop. Those things would cost an additional $8 million or oh, potentially God. more. Now, old Robert really thought that people wanted this, that they were salivating over a statue idea. So he set out to raise money for the project. And surprise, it didn't work. Out of the $12 million or so that he needed, Robert raised a whopping $3,000. <laughs> he needed $12 million and only got 3000 Yeah. That's that's insane. Now, that's a rocking 0.00025% of what he needed. That's, um, I cannot believe that he was like, I'm going to buy Waverly and put a giant Jesus statue on the roof. Mm-hmm. And then put a gift shop underneath it. Yeah. He uh, he was out of his mind. And then he thought people would actually fund it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's insane. So in December, the entire project was halted due to, can you guess? No funding. I mean, honestly, thank goodness. Yeah, that'd be so weird. I like, That is not the place for that. No, I mean, so if you've seen the statue of Christ the Redeemer in Rio. Uh-huh. It's pretty incredible. You it know, really is. The location, it's like on the hill, it overlooks the city, and it's like, holy shit, you know? I but, have nothing against Jesus statues. No, but like this one, just like, if you if you think about it, like, that's a, such a weird place. Yeah, that well, that's what I'm saying. That's not the place to do that. No. Keep that place, keep it respectable, mm -hmm. and, you know, respect it for what it was and the people that died there. Don't make it into a, a tourist attraction like mm -hmm. that. Like yeah. that. Yeah. That, I just, I don't get it. Yeah, it seems a little just, I don't know, this dude seems off. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a fucking shame because Robert had gotten a little bit ahead of himself, right? And he'd already begun demolishing some of the buildings at Waverly. After Robert was done, there was only the main building and one other building left on the property. So he just went to town on demo. Apparently, Robert also had been digging around the main building's foundation, though no one really knows why. A lot of people seem to think that he did it just because the mentality of like, well, if I can't build a giant Jesus statue here, I'm going to make sure the building falls apart. I'm going to collapse it. And then no one will ever be able to do anything here. It was noted that this guy had legit dug as much as 30 feet down in some places. And to this day, unless something's pretty recently changed, you can still see spots that he dug. Because the building was so solidly built, though, it didn't fall. And it's still kicking. Thank goodness for that. Yeah, right? And I honestly, I knew about, you know, the buildings getting knocked down and about, you know, the foundation being dug around. But I didn't know that that dude was the one that did that. Yeah. I cannot believe he just decided I'm going to go and knock down all of these historical buildings. Yeah, he's a nutbag. Yeah, that makes me very upset. Rightly so. So after his failure... Robert abandoned the building. He didn't even try to sell it. He just up and walked away. This led to Waverly becoming a prime location for vandals, homeless people, teens, drug addicts. During this time, Waverly sat vacant. Every window in the place got broken out. Every single one. That's crazy. All the copper got stripped out of it. Most of the porcelain was even stolen. And what couldn't be stolen was smashed. Doors were tor torn off hinges and they had spray paint over practically every wall. Why do people vandalize stuff? Like truly, why do people, why do they think that that's a good idea to go in and just trash places? I don't know. I but, don't, I don't get that mentality. But it was during this time that the building began to build up its haunted reputation. 
It was becoming a place to dare other people to go. And it wasn't long before the ghost stories from Waverly began to circulate. We won't go into that portion this week because, like I said, Isabel's going to tell us about the spirits at Waverly next Tuesday. Yeah, I am. Thankfully, though, in 2001, Waverly was purchased by its current owners, Tina and Charlie Mattingly. When they bought the location, they immediately began facilities restoration. And they're awesome people. They established the Waverly Hills Historical Society and began to raise funds to bring the building back to life. Volunteers swooped in and ready and willing to help Tina and Charlie get the place back up and running again. It was a tough job. The vandals had really fucked up a lot of the building. There was broken glass everywhere, broken porcelain, and about an inch of dirt coating everything. There was even an asbestos hazard to deal with. But now, the place has been cleaned up and looks great. There's all new windows, no more broken glass or asbestos, no more dirt covering everything. The walls were restored and the roof was fixed. You can now pay to investigate Waverly, and apparently it cost a small fortune to do so. I didn't look into the prices, but the owners are using the money for good regardless of the price tag. Yeah, they are. You you can literally see where all the money raised is going as you wander the property, watching it come back to life. I've never, you know, I've never met them mm-hmm. ever, but everything that I've seen about them, they are literally just awesome people. Yeah, it seems that way. Yeah. So there are plans to convert the second and third floors into a 120-room hotel. The first floor would be a restaurant, conference center, some shops, and maybe even some medical offices. And the fourth floor would be used for meetings and health-related classes, potentially even a museum-like exhibit. Which would be really cool. Oh, yeah. But even with the conversion of the building, the ghost tours are stated that they won't stop. I would really like to go before it gets turned into a hotel so we can see the entire building. Absolutely. But, you know, I mean, like I said, it costs a lot. It Yes, but I think the cost would be worth it and it's going toward a worthy cause. Yeah, that's true. Start a GoFundMe or something. Yeah, or, you know, the podcast just gets really big and then we can go and do hopefully maybe a remote show mm-hmm. there. That'd be neat. Mm-hmm. So during the restoration process, the volunteers began to have some haunting encounters, just like the people who trespassed when the building was sitting vacant. And I can't wait to hear about the paranormal side of Waverly from Isabel next week. Yeah, it's going to be great. So that's the history behind Waverly. I know you fiends come for paranormal, and although this episode may not have had the spookiness, it did provide me with chills. Sometimes the darkness and sadness from historical events can be just as bone-shivering as the paranormal occurrences. Also, I think it's important to highlight all the trauma and death, which likely laid the groundwork for Isabel's paranormal breakdown. But until then, we leave you with a cliffhanger. And a good cliffhanger it is. Mm -hmm. Waverly is just one of those iconic locations that has a horrible past. Yeah. But a necessary past, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, to, you know, kind of slingshot us into where we're at today. Yeah. And the other side of it, the side that I will cover next week, is pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. I think so. I look forward to hearing about it. Yeah. And I, I look forward to telling about it. You know, every There's so many stories mm-hmm. that there was no way I was going to be able to pick and choose. I mean, all of them. Like, yeah. I couldn't possibly. But I, I tried to pick the ones that seemed, I don't know, the ones that kind of got to me and trying to highlight everything that's happening inside of that place. But there's just so much. It was... It was impossible. Which means that there's going to be some crazy stuff. Yeah. And uh, I definitely want to go. 
Yeah. Waverly has always been on that like paranormal bucket list for me. For sure. And we all know that I definitely have one. New Orleans was one. Mm -hmm. And we got to go there and that was incredible. I want to go back so bad. No doubt. Same here. I mean, even the kids, they still remember going. I mean, obviously they were older when we went, so Mm -hmm. there's no reason for them not to, but... The fact that, you know, it's been, what, five years now? And they're still like, we want to go back so bad. Even if I wasn't going for the paranormal stuff, which was very interesting, very cool, I would go back just for the food. And the history. That too, but I would go back for the food alone. That's always what you would go back for. You are like a foodie. I like food. Yes, you do. And you will go anywhere and try anything. Pretty much. Pretty much. I haven't really seen much of anything that you won't dig into. No, I have I have a curiosity for foods. And I don't. Hmm. I'm very much a polar opposite where I am way more picky and if it sounds disgusting, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna touch it. Yeah. Well, that's fair. Yeah. Anyways, well back to Waverly real quick before we, we hop out of here. Yeah. That was a very interesting history. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried really hard to not look into the history while I was doing my part because yeah. I wanted to be surprised. Right. And even though most of us have heard about Waverly, I feel like most of us don't know the actual details of what happened there. So it's really great to hear them. Yeah, it is. And I really kind of did the same thing. I tried to avoid as much of the paranormal stuff as possible, but it's really hard to not have that brought up when you're going into the history. It is. Yeah. They're kind of just intertwined and, Mm -hmm. you know, connected because it's, you know, it's all the history of this building. But I think it, it's a really good understanding to lay out why the paranormal stuff happening is there today because you have tuberculosis death and then you have, uh, Elderly and mentally uh, disabled people being abused and mistreated, neglected. Yeah. Yeah. And then on top of that, you have these people's last place of living, their place of death being just vandalized and destroyed and torn down. So there's so much there to cause like all this stuff to be brought up. And I mean, I'm not going to go into it really heavy right now because we're going to get a full, you know, dose of it next week whenever I dive into my part. But it wasn't just TB. It wasn't just, you know, a nursing home. There were murders there. Ooh. And so, I mean, that definitely, you know, lends to hauntings. They say that violence kind of sprouts paranormal. Yeah. And I mean, anytime you have a, uh, a murder somewhere, a slaying, if you will, mm-hmm. it's going to rock the, uh, the atmosphere, the vibe. Yeah, for sure. So, Ooh, this place is something else. Um, I'm really glad that we tackled it though. I think this was a really good one. And I really enjoy the, these two parters where you kind of get a history of a place, but also the paranormal mm-hmm. makes me really excited. So oh, I yeah. hope that all of you fiends enjoyed it, that y'all are kind of enjoying this like history lesson kind of thrown in with paranormal because it's definitely right up my alley. Mm-hmm. You're a huge history fan. I really, really am. Most places that I want to go to aren't, aren't just, you know, haunted. Mm-hmm. They have a history to them. And that, that really attracts me. It's hard to go somewhere that doesn't have a history. I mean, yes. I mean, more like an interesting history, I guess. Fair enough. I mean, if that makes sense. I'm just being a jerk. Yeah, you really are. Anyways. Well, I think that's all we got for this Tuesday. Yep. Thanks for listening, fiends. We really appreciate it. If you, you know, share the podcast with a friend, family member, or stranger on the street, help us get our name out there. 
and uh, help the podcast grow. We would also really love it if you would come and find us on our socials. I'll have all of the links posted in the show notes. And I'll post all the pictures and everything for this episode on the socials so you can go and hop over there and see them. Um, we also have, you know, our Facebook group going for all of our fiends. It's a great place for all of us to come together and just get to know one, one another and just talk and hang out and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Isabel's been real active in there lately. I really like it. I enjoy talking to all of the listeners. Mm -hmm. So it would be awesome if y'all would come and hang out with us. For sure. But other than that, I guess we'll see y'all on Friday. Yeah. Thanks for being here, fiends. Until then.